Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, starting at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The verses I just read uh, for you are the closing words of the Gospel of Matthew. This is an event that took place after the resurrection of Christ. And if you have been in or around Christian circles for very long, you, 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 know, you probably um, very likely recognize these words, especially the words of verse 19 and 20. Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20 is often referred to as the Great Commission. And it's called the Great Commission because this is probably the clearest expression we have of the mission that Christ has for his church in the world. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Christ had commanded us. That is, that's the mission that that Christ has for his church in the world. And the Great Commission, these verses are very familiar uh, to many people. As I said, if you've, if you've been around churches, you'll often hear these verses quoted in sermons or you hear them read in church services or, you know, at the missions conferences or, or things like that. These are very familiar words. Now, the problem that some of us have is that for some of us, uh, these words have become a little bit too familiar. We're, uh, we're used to them, right? We're, we're, we're comfortable with them. Um, the Great Commission doesn't, it, this doesn't really shock us anymore. We, so, some of us, and I include myself in this, we've heard, we've heard these words so many times, we may not realize how truly radical these words are. You see, most, most scholars agree that the book of Matthew was probably written primarily with Jewish readers in mind. There's a very, there's a very Jewish uh, flavor to the, to the book of Matthew, which means that most likely the, the first men and women to hear the words that I just read for you were probably first century Jewish followers of Jesus Christ, first century Jewish Christians. And when they heard this message, message or this, this passage, um, I imagine that they just must have trembled in surprise. Their jaws would have hung open, just amazed why? Because these are radical words. This is revolutionary stuff here. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just point out two radical ideas that we find in this passage, and then I want to try to figure out how these, how these two ideas relate to each other. Okay, so for two, two radical ideas. The first is this. Uh, this. This passage gives us a radical view of God. A radical understanding of the nature of God. So in the Old Testament, and and perhaps you've read it, um, a key idea in the Old Testament that is driven home again and again is this clear teaching that there is one and only one God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Deuteronomy 4.39 says, The Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. No other God. Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, God says, there is no God. So uh, what what, um, Jewish people in the time of Christ would have clearly understood is that there is one and only one God. And they would have, listen, they would have understood with every fiber of their being that to worship anyone or anything other than the Lord is a sin of, of the highest order. Let me read again. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. <laughs> These are Jewish men worshipping a Jewish man named Jesus. This is just astonishing. And you'll notice, not not only, listen, not only does Jesus not forbid them from worshiping him, he doesn't stop them. Not only does he not forbid them from worshiping him, take a look at what Jesus says. Starting middle of verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, to me. Therefore, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, did you notice Jesus says, go baptize them in the name, singular, not plural, not names, the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There, he, He's not talking about three different names. He's talking about one name. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it, listen, in the Bible, the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is not just a word that you use to identify who God is. No, in the Bible, God's name, um, God's name conveys the idea of God's nature, God's very being. This is why in, in the Old Testament, you'll often read uh, of people who sing to the name or they call on the name or they trust in the name or they run to the name of the Lord. But why, why does the Old Testament talk this way? Because God's name conveys the idea of God's being. So in this, this, uh, this baptismal formula here, Jesus here is describing a God who has one name, one being, and yet is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One being, three persons. And, and you probably recognize that this is, uh, this is one of those key passages from which uh, the Christian church has derived the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of, of the Trinity states that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. All right, One being, three persons. Now, in the doctrine of, of the Trinity, we understand that each, each person in the Trinity is fully God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet they are three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Both the Father and the Son are distinct from the Spirit. So, so God, you see, God is a Trinity. God is a tri-unity, three in one, one in in three. Now, this this has been a obviously this is a hard doctrine to understand, and some people have, for that reason, wanted to reject it. Just like I don't like that doctrine, I I'm not going to believe that. That listen, Trinity, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, listen, of course it doesn't make sense to you. 
Listen, did you really expect to understand God? You, you know, um, astronomers tell us that um, the Earth, um, you could, they tell us, you can fit 1.3 million planets the size of the Earth into the Sun. The Sun is that much bigger than the Earth. And yet they tell us that the, the, our Sun is really just an average size star. It's not a very big one. And, and they estimate that there are something like 2.5 billion stars in our galaxy alone, the, the Milky Way galaxy. And they estimate that there are something like 2 trillion galaxies in the, uh, in the universe. Listen, of course you don't understand God. God is the being who, you're, you, you and I were made of dust, but God is the being who spoke the universe into existence. It, he is, he is a being, three in one, one in three, beyond our comprehension. Now, this is not the first place in the Bible you, you see uh, this idea of, of Trinity. There are hints of it throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. For example, we saw earlier in the service, Gen Genesis 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let me make man in my image. No, that's not what he said. Isn't this weird? Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image. Who is he talking to? This, there's this mysterious understanding that God, God is a being beyond what we can comprehend. So there, there are hints of this throughout the Old Testament, but, but you, don't see, um, you don't see this doctrine of the, the Trinity uh, with the kind of clarity that we see in this passage in, until Jesus proclaims it right here, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, as I said, this is radical. This passage, first, it gives us a radical view of God. Then, notice, this passage gives us a radical view of people, of other people. Again, let me read middle of verse 18. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, verse 19, he says, Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, when Jesus told his disciples, go make, disciple, make disciples of the nations, that word, all the nations, that word for nations there is a word that Greek-speaking Jews in the first century would have used to describe Gentiles. That's the way they, they viewed uh, the world. There was the covenant people of God, Israel, the Jewish people, and then there was the nations, the Gentiles, the pagan nations. So you could e easily translate verse 19, or all authority given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples of all. Go make disciples of the Gentiles. That's what he's telling his, his disciples. Go, go make disciples of, of the pagans. Of, go, go to the Gentiles and reach out to them. Now, you, to understand how radical that must have been for them, you need to understand a little bit about the way that first century Jews would have felt about the nations, about the Gentiles, and they felt this for good reason. Um, so we, we live in a country where it's no secret, we have a long, we have a long history of racial division in, in our country, a lot, long history of injustice and oppression and animosity. I think it was last year that marked the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the very first African slaves to the British colonies, the now part of the United States. So we, living in our country, we understand what it's like uh, for there to be a long history of suspicion and distrust and, and antagonism, division between um ethnic groups between the races. 
But what we need to understand is that our history of racial division is actually very short. When you compare it to to the, the length of the history of the oppression of the Jewish people by the nations, by the Gentiles. You've, you've read the Bible. You know, first, um, they were enslaved by the Egyptians for, what, 400 years. Um, then they, they were, they were a, a, attacked by the Canaanites when they tried to enter the promised land. Then they were harassed and oppressed and subjugated by the Philistines for, you know, how many generations. And then, then they were conquered by the Assyrians. And they were kidnapped by the, by the Babylonians. By the time that Jesus uh, speaks these words, they, 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 were, they were living in an occupied country. Their own country was occupied by the, by the, the pagan armies of Rome. So for 18, over 1,800 years, the, he, Jesus is talking to people who have been cruelly oppressed by Gentiles, by the nations. So because of this, first century Jews, for for good reason, really wanted to have no dealing at all with the the Gentiles, with the nations. They they avoided the nations. They they shunned the nations. They distrusted the the nations. Uh, We read in the Bible that they, they would not they would not eat at Gentile tables. They would not enter Gentile homes. So Do you see why this commission is so radical? Jesus is saying to them, I want you to go make disciples of all the nations, those people, the Gentiles. And you'll notice here, he doesn't just say, listen, I want you to go share the gospel with them. Just evangelize them. Your job is to impart the information about the gospel. And then when you've done that, you know, you can move on and wash your hands of them. And you never have to deal with them again. Just give them the message. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to go baptize the nations. Make them disciples, share the gospel, tell them the message that they they can be forgiven by God through the death of Jesus and and, and by trusting in him. And then I want you to baptize them. Now, listen, over the years, um, various Christian traditions have approached baptism in different ways. There's been kind of this this in-school debate among Christians about, you know, when do you baptize, whom do you baptize, how do you baptize? But so there's some differences of, of, of view on that. But virtually all Christian traditions agree in this. We all view baptism. Baptism is the point of entry into the church. If you are baptized, you're part of the church. If you, in other words, if, you, if you've been baptized, you are a member of the family now. You're a member of the family of God. Malcolm X um, once said that in his opinion... He thought the only thing that would, could ever truly integrate United States society, the, the only thing that would you know, put an end to the racial division would be interracial marriage. If there, if there could somehow just be generations of widespread interracial marriage, that would solve the problem. And it's kind of strange that Malcolm X would say that because he often went on record speaking out against interracial marriage. But I, I think that the point of what he was making was, in his opinion, he, he felt that the wounds of racial trauma in our nation are so deep and, and the division that has existed between racial groups has gone on for so long that in his opinion, he thought the only thing that would ever solve that problem would be for people from two divided groups actually, you know, to get married and make babies together. In other words, for us literally to all become one family together. 
you know, when Jesus, when Jesus said, go baptize the nations, he was telling his Jewish disciples, I want you to go bring those Gentiles into the family. Not, not through marriage, through something even more powerful than marriage, through baptism. I want you to go to the people you hate, the people you fear, the people who have been oppressing you. I want you to tell them the good news about God's love in Christ, and then I want you to bring them into your family. So you see what I'm talking about. This is radical stuff. This is radical. This is a great commission, but it is a radical commission. I mean, first Jesus, like, he blows their mind with his incomprehensible view of God. God is three in one, one in three, and then he just blows their mind with his radical view of others. I want you to go to your, your worst enemy, and I want, I want you to invite them to join your family. So there's a radical view of God here, and there's a radical view of, of others. Now, in closing, how, how, do, these, how do these two mind-blowing ideas uh, relate to each other? Is there any connection? I, th- I think there is. 1 John 4 verse 18 says, God is love. Do you know that verse? God is love. In other words, from all eternity at the core of his being, love has always been central to the nature of God himself. God is love. Love. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity um, shows us how this can be true. Why? Well, because, um, as I'm sure you remember from your grammar teaching in sixth grade, love is a transitive verb, right? Meaning love love always has a direct object. You can't just sit there and love. You have to, you, you have to love someone or something. Love has to have an object. So listen, if God were merely a unity rather than being a trinity, in other words, if God God were just one person rather than being three persons, um, then that would mean that before God created the universe, before there were any other creatures, God could not have been loved because God would have been alone. And if you're alone, you can't love because, because there's no one for you to love. Here, here's the way C.S. Lewis uh, described this in, in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this. He said, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. He, he said, love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. So, so you see, without the doctrine of the Trinity, um, love cannot be at the center of the very nature of God. But since God is a Trinity, since God is a triunity, three persons in one, then this means that very easily from all of eternity, from forever, God has always been loving. From all eternity, the Father has been loving the Son, and the Son has been loving the Father. From all eternity, the Father has been loving the Spirit, and the Spirit has been loving the Father. From from all eternity, the Son and the Spirit have been delighting and rejoicing in it and loving each other. So in other words, God, listen, God in and of himself is, God is an infinite, eternal, ongoing, unending community of love. Now we say, well, what does this have to do with us having to go baptize 
the Gentiles, you know, bringing people we don't really like into our, our community of faith. What does this have to do this with that? Well, listen, this, you talk about radical stuff. Listen, the Bible teaches that when we, when we place our faith in Jesus, by the way, if you've never done that today, God loves you so much. He is inviting you to place your trust in Jesus. But when the Bible says when we place our faith in Jesus, we are given what theologians call union with Christ. We are, in, in, a, in a very real but mysterious sense, we are one with Christ now. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We have been, we've been buried with Christ. Uh, Romans 6, we've been raised with Christ. Colossians 3, we are engrafted into Christ. John 15, we are clothed with Christ. Galatians 3, we have been given union with Christ. Because we have union with Christ, Ephesians 2 verse 6 says that right now, believer, right now in Christ, you are right now seated with God in the heavenly realms, right? What does that mean? I, I don't, I'm not sure, but I think it means that, listen, in some very mysterious sense, because you are in Christ, the second person of the Trinity, you have now been enveloped into this um, this dynamic flow of love that's being shared among the members of the Trinity. Peter wrote, 2 Peter 1 verse 4, he said that in Christ, he said, we participate in the divine nature. Now, I, I'm not sure what this means, and I, and, I, and I doubt that this can be accurately illustrated, but here's, a, here's an image that comes to mind for me. When, um, when my oldest daughter was a little girl, uh, sometimes when she would see me and my wife hugging each other, she would feel jealous, like she was being left out. And so she would complain, no, hug me, hug me. So so we would invite her over to us and we would say, come here, you get to be the, we'd, call, we'd say, you get to be the sweetheart in the middle. And then we would lift her up and we would put her between our two bodies and we would hug each other as tightly as we could with her right sandwiched right there in the middle and she of course would laugh and squeal as a child would do she she was um she was included included in our embrace she was she was included into the love that we shared for each other and i get the sense that that's what listen that's what god does for us in christ in some mysterious way because we are in Christ, we are enveloped into this dynamic, ongoing sharing of love that exists between the three persons of the Trinity. It's like we, we are sandwiched into their embrace. Ephesians 2 verse 6 and 7 says this. It says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that... In the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his, of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ. So in some sense, God has now, in Christ, brought us into this, the, the warmth of, of the love shared between the members of the Trinity. And his intention is for the rest of eternity to keep loving us forever this way. Now... This is pretty. Uh, this is pretty heady stuff. This this kind of theoretical talking. What in the world does this have to do with me reaching out to people I don't really like and in, and, and including them in in the community of faith? Well, listen. If you think about it this way, the the great commission, this command to go baptize the nation, to go invite outsiders to come into the family of God. This this command to bring outsiders in to our community 
It springs from the heart of a God who did that very thing for us. The the God who is infinite, eternal, ongoing love, he brought us, even though we were his enemies, through the death of Christ, he brought us into his love. And he sends us to reach out to others with the same kind of compassionate love for them. So um, this is why healthy, listen, healthy Christianity has always taught, and yes, we know there have been there have been examples of unhealthy Christianity, but healthy Christianity has always taught that any kind of racism, any kind of ethnocentrism, any any kind of uh, nationalistic pride which looks at others with disdain, any kind of xenophobia, it's it's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because you just think about it. How in the world can can people like us, people who've been enveloped into the infinite love of the Trinity, how can we refuse to love our neighbor. In, in fact, uh, the apostle John, 1 John verse 4, 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, he said, whoever doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. So I think John would say to the extent that there are people that you just do not love. You know, I don't love those people. I, I don't love them. He, he would say to that extent, you, you haven't yet come to know the love of God for you. He said, because God is love from all eternity. God is this this ongoing triunity, this community of love. He he has invited you into his love to know his love, and he wants you to share his love with others. So this is our our radical commission. Uh, If you've come to Christ, listen, we we have been incorporated into a love that we cannot explain uh, that is given to us by a God whom we cannot comprehend, and we are we are sent to people whom we might view as outsiders to us, to tell them about Christ and to invite them into our family, into the family of God. This is this is the commission God has given to us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your infinite and unending love for us in Christ. I I pray that for each one of us, this love would become the deepest, um, most transformative reality of our lives. For any who've never come to know this love, that you would speak to them today, that you love them through Jesus, you are calling them to yourself. For those of us who know your love, that this would fill us to overflowing. And that knowing your love for us would teach us, compel us to love others in our world. Not to view any of them as our adversary, but to call them to Christ, to call them to to the Trinity, to call them into the community of the church for the glory of your name. Amen.